You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Uh, and this is really what keeps me up at night, some of these potential attacks on our critical infrastructure, the things that we rely on uh, to survive. People can go without electricity for, you know, a couple of days if necessary. Um, anything longer than that, it becomes a huge issue. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben talks about a case dealing with the timing of computer search warrants. I look at copyright and Apple's loss in court in an iOS case. And later in the show, Ben and I discuss some recent cybersecurity legislation that he had a hand in crafting. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, uh, we've got some interesting things to cover today and uh, should say also that we're uh, departing from our usual format a little bit in that uh, we are going to have a conversation after our usual stories where we usually have a guest slot. You're the guest this week. Unfortunately for our <laughs> listeners, you are stuck with me the entire episode. That's right. So if you get tired of this voice, this is just uh, to warn you in advance. There you go. So this is... Uh, We'll we'll uh, we'll dig into the details when we get there. But Ben actually had a hand in uh, some interesting legislation that made its way through Maryland here, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about a little bit of the behind the scenes. So get a little view on uh, how the sausage is made. So always the fun part. Yep. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Uh, but let's dig into our stories. What do you have for us this week? So my story is about a case uh, I found out about it through Professor Orrin Kerr. I know we get a little repetitive <laughs> here. Um, but he writes uh, for a blog called The Volok Conspiracy, hmm. um, which used to be hosted by The Washington Post. It's now on uh, the Reason website. So it's largely a collection of libertarian-leaning uh, attorneys. Hmm. And this is a case about computer search warrants, uh, specifically a case uh, from the Northern District of California. It's a federal case, United States v. Kopankov. Hmm. Uh, so... Local law enforcement in California obtained this guy's iPhone uh, as part of a criminal investigation back in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, and this person was technologically sophisticated, so his iPhone was pretty well encrypted. Uh, and law enforcement wanted to get into the 
his device to find incriminating evidence that they could use at trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they couldn't do it. Um, they tried all of the easy traditional methods. None of them worked. So they sent that device over to the FBI, and the FBI initiated a brute force attack. Mm. Uh I actually sent a YouTube clip to Oren Kirk because it reminds me of a family guy uh, bit where (laughs) Stewie is trying to reach Lois and he tries every single set of seven phone numbers uh, to try and reach her. So he goes, 111, 111, 111, 111, Right. So that is basically uh, what happened here. Just uh, it was automated. And um, if you think about passcodes, you know, a six-digit passcode, the number of potential passcodes is almost limitless. I mean, there's just a ton of different combinations. Yeah. Uh, so even with this brute force method, it just takes a while to find the particular passcode that unlocks the device. Right. They were finally able to decrypt the device like three weeks ago, 2023. Oh. So it took up to four years for them to decrypt the, uh, decrypt the device. Huh. They were able to do it. I won't get into the technological methods, but... It just took a really, really long time. Right. Uh, There's one problem here, which is that the magistrate judge who approved the warrant to search the device included a supplemental portion of his opinion that put a time limit on uh, this type of forensic search. Hmm. So he said that this warrant authorizes the government, and then uh, it ended up being the FBI because it was uh, sent to the FBI. They have X number of months to try to get into this device. That's how long the warrant is valid. Okay. Uh, Does this sort of tie into the right to a speedy trial Not really. I mean, I think it's more about the particularity requirement of the Fourth Amendment that you don't want— an overbroad authorization, uh, which we'll get to in a second. Okay, I think, okay. Sorry, I'm jumping no, the No, no, that's okay. I mean, I, I think the <laughs> essence of this is Professor Kerr believes that those types of restrictions, what he calls ex-ante rules or restrictions, are just not proper in Fourth Amendment analyses. Hmm. Uh, and it shouldn't be within judges' purview, in his view, uh, to set these type of arbitrary time limits. Okay. Um, but... I think what the judge is saying in this case, uh, and we'll get to that in a second too, is that this was uh, there was a time limit placed on this warrant. Once that time limit, uh, once that time limit expired, and it was I think extended once or twice, but once it expired, that warrant was no longer authorized, and therefore this was a warrantless search. Okay. Uh, now warrantless searches can still be reasonable under uh, a Fourth Amendment na- analysis under the right circumstances, uh, but here this warrantless search uh, because it was invasive because it was going into an individual's device was not considered reasonable. Therefore, all of the evidence gained uh, from decrypting this phone is is inadmissible at trial as fruits of the poisonous tree. Wow. So that's really going to kill your case, right? Yeah. All the evidence was was on this device. Basically, what Professor Kerr argues is that this is an improper formulation of Fourth Amendment analysis. The Fourth Amendment is concerned with whether uh, a search or seizure is reasonable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And reasonableness can be determined in a number of ways. One of them is by showing that a warrant was properly issued based on probable cause. Uh, And here, at least in the plain text of the Fourth Amendment, you have a probable cause determination. You were able to get a magistrate judge to agree to issue that warrant. That is sort of the... all of the necessary information that goes into a Fourth Amendment analysis. A magistrate judge can place all 
you know, all different types of ex ante restrictions on that warrant. Uh-huh. Uh, but that is that does not bear on whether this is a constitutional Fourth Amendment search. Huh. Uh, it's an entirely separate inquiry. So the search itself can still be reasonable even if the particular magistrate judge puts time limits on it. I think this is important uh, in our modern digital landscape because as decryption uh, or or as encryption, rather, gets more sophisticated and becomes more difficult to unlock devices, law enforcement agencies are going to need more time and or resources to get the information that they need to effectuate the search. Uh, and if this judge's opinion was adopted, we could see circumstances where magistrate judges issue arbitrary time limits on uh, these computer searches. Those time limits expire, and then even if you find the most incriminating evidence possible, it's a warrantless, unreasonable search, and therefore that evidence has to be suppressed at trial. Hmm. Uh, And I think from Professor Kerr's perspective, that's an unfair outcome for law enforcement. Uh, They went through the necessary steps to try to secure a valid Fourth Amendment uh, search warrant. They were able to do so, and the time limits are immaterial to the constitutionality of that search. Uh, I usually agree with Professor Kerr on these things. I'm a little uncertain in these circumstances just Mm -hmm. because of the particularity requirements of the Fourth Amendment and knowing the historical context uh, behind our, our Fourth Amendment, which was about avoiding these general warrants or writs of assistance. Mm-hmm. And there is sort of a fine line between setting arbitrary time limits and what I think could happen in the absence of any time limits, which is that you could have kind of these endless warrants right. where— 30 years down the line, somebody's able to decrypt the device, and right. then this person who's been in legal limbo uh, is subject to criminal prosecution. I think that might be an overbroad warrant. So I think it's not that easy of an issue to resolve, frankly. It reminds me of, of a related issue with cryptography, where um, as um, quantum computers are making their way to the, the forefront and the, the development continues with those, that um, what is not uh, uh, unencryptable today may be unencryptable tomorrow. Right. And so there's this notion— It's coming. Yeah, and yeah. there's this notion that particularly, for example, nation states will vacuum up encrypted communications from their adversaries knowing that— if they sit on it long enough, someday they'll be able to decrypt it. Um, now, you know, is if those communications are valuable 10 years from now or 20 years from now or two years from now, who knows? But this makes me think of that. And I guess I'm concerned that, um, you know, I can get a, does this mean I can get a warrant for something and basically there's no statute of limitations? Right. There's no, you know, it is, that doesn't seem... Uh, the spirit of our legal system either. I don't think it is either. I mean, the way Professor Kerr would see it is the government had a search warrant based on probable cause. The Uh Fourth Amendment, in his view, permitted the government to search the phone. It's immaterial to a Fourth Amendment analysis whether the government can break into the phone quickly or whether it'll take several years. Um, Whether 
it's quick or whether it will take several years is a question that gets into advances in quantum computing and uh, the technology to decrypt certain devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also am afraid of a future where there is this level of uncertainty where people would have, whether it's private individuals or law enforcement, as you say, would have incentive to try and get devices within their dominion, within their uh, control, even if those devices or that particular form of communication is well decrypted, and just wait it out. See if you can, at some point, whether it's you know a month down the line or 10 years down the line, have access to that information. Right. Uh, now, that might be some other type of legal violation under statute, uh, but at least as it comes to the Fourth Amendment, when we're dealing with law enforcement, if the view of Professor Kerr were to hold, that would be that just would have no bearing on the uh, constitutionality of the search from a Fourth Amendment perspective. Huh. Um, and I think, you know, the alternative view would be you have to look at the Fourth Amendment analysis holistically. Any reasonableness determination weighs the security uh, value to the government of being able to access information against the invasion of privacy on the individual. And if you have kind of this ticking time bomb where somebody captures a device and they're just waiting for the technology to be able to decrypt it, I think that can have significant inhibitions on the privacy of those device holders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it goes against the spirit of the amendment where there are Uh, confines on these warrants. I mean, a warrant has to particularly describe the thing to be searched, uh, the person to be seized, et cetera. Uh, And if you don't nail down that level of particularity, if the warrant is relatively uh, unimpeded and the period that the warrant is active is is unending, I think that can create uh, some privacy concerns on behalf of that device holder. So it's certainly a difficult issue. I mean, I don't think from a legal perspective, it's it's uh, black and white. I can understand the perspective of the judge here yeah. who thought that the warrant had expired. I can also understand the perspective uh, from Orrin Kerr, which is why should we let this magistrate judge put random arbitrary time limits on otherwise authorized Fourth Amendment searches? Hmm. Uh why does, the, why does the magistrate judge get, get to play God in that context? There was a probable cause determination. It shouldn't matter for Fourth Amendment purposes when the FBI was able to decrypt that phone. Uh, I think you have to kind of look at it more holistically. Uh, it's not 100% irrelevant, as uh, Professor Kerr says, that the brute force attack took three years. I think that has to be included in a consideration as to whether the search was reasonable for Fourth Amendment purposes. Uh, And I I think a holistic approach would be a better way of solving this problem than just throwing out any sort of arbitrary time limits altogether. Is there a danger that this could be a a backdoor path to incarceration? In other words, you know, hey, Bob, we have probable cause that you did something. We got your phone here. Probably going to take three or four years to decrypt that thing, so... Sit tight and enjoy your time uh, <laughs> under our roof. Right. I mean, I mean, there are certainly circumstances where uh, you have probable cause, but you don't have the type of proof that you would need to convict at trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, if those circumstances would be one, and again, this is relatively unlikely in our legal system, but where you know somebody uh, is remanded to custody without bail. Um, then you do have the potential to have that person unlawfully or maybe not unlawfully, but improperly detained for an extended period of time because it takes so long 
to gain that evidence. Right. Uh, I think it's more likely to benefit the defendant uh, because when we're talking about the length of these brute force attacks, it's more likely that the government wouldn't be able to establish probable cause or establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt because that evidence is missing for such a long time. Is is there any indication here that the judge had any sort of framework for the the time limit? I don't think so. I mean, that's the other mysterious aspect of this case is it does seem to be rather arbitrary. Hmm. Uh, I think in the original warrant, he put that the phone had to be decrypted within a certain number of days. Um, The government applied and obtained an extension of that warrant through about a year later. So the uh, FBI had requested an extension to, I believe, June 2021. Hmm. Um, that is from that time, so 2019 through 2021, presumably every single day the FBI was trying to decrypt that device. Right. They were not able to obtain a further extension, um, but just with the passage of time in 2023, uh, they were able to create a mirror image of the device uh, before they were able to apply for another warrant to search that image. Hmm. Uh, so I think... In, this, in the judge's view here, uh, after that original warrant expired, it was incumbent upon the government to apply for an additional warrant to cover that extended time period. And if the warrant hadn't uh, authorized the search in 2023, they would need a separate warrant to search the, the device once it had been decrypted. And the fact that they didn't do that means all of that evidence has to be suppe- uh, suppressed at, at trial. So where does this leave us now with cases going forward? So uh, this is a uh, district court case. Uh, you know, it's an interesting case and relatively persuasive, but the district court is below the court of appeals. There's some indication that in other courts of appeals, one of them being the 11th Circuit, uh, judges... Uh, have at least been more deferential to this idea that we should not have arbitrary time limits on computer search warrants. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a case called United States v. Nicholson, which was decided last year, where a magistrate judge required the computer to be see uh, a computer that was seized to be forensically searched within sixty days. Uh, and the court in that case, and this was an appeals court, held that. Um, a search beyond that 60-day period did not violate the Fourth Amendment because there is no Fourth Amendment limit on when that forensic search occurred after the computer uh, was seized. Hmm. Um, The question in that case came down to remedy. Uh, So uh, what Professor Kerr would argue is that there's no remedy at all. Uh, This is just kind of um, an an improper... uh, this is kind of an improper judicial standard that uh, doesn't create a proper remedy. Um, what the court in that case said is that an ex ante warrant violation was comparable to a violation of the rules of criminal procedure, um, which I think, uh, and not to get too deep into the weeds uh, here, it would be too much of an inhibition uh, in Professor Kerr's view on on the government. So huh. there is some precedent in another judicial circuit uh-huh. uh, that judges, at least appeals court judges in that circuit, are skeptical of these time limits uh, and don't think that these time limits are related to a broader Fourth Amendment analysis. Um, that hasn't necessarily been adopted by other circuits, including the Ninth Circuit, where... Um, this case will will now head, uh, and I would suspect that the government is going to appeal the 
denial uh, of access to this evidence. And we'll see it come in front of a panel of the Ninth Circuit. And maybe they come to the same conclusion as the Eleventh Circuit, and maybe maybe they do not. That's hmm. to be determined. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned, right? Yeah, I think it's just a really interesting uh, story where I can understand both perspectives. Uh, and it's a legal issue where I don't think there's really a, a clear answer. Hmm. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Um, my story this week uh, comes from uh, a ruling from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. A lot of shout-outs to the 11th Circuit today. <laughs> You'd think they'd they're, be paying us, They're right? in the middle of everything, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, Apple versus a company called Corellium. Uh, and the finding is uh, that copying functional software like iOS falls under fair use. So Corellium uh, made a virtual environment that you could run um, iOS code in a virtual environment. And this is primarily for folks who are doing security research um, to be able to test vulnerabilities in a controlled environment uh, on their systems to have you know your desktop computer to basically emulate iOS, which is Apple's mobile operating system, and to be able to do things that you need to do. So Corellium came up with a way to do this uh, Apple sued them, saying that this was um, violating Apple's copyright, that iOS is protected by copyright. Uh, and it made its way through the courts. And uh, as we say, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals uh, said no, that this is this does fall under fair use, um, that it is transformative. Um, I find this very interesting, and, and I'm curious for your take on this, Ben. I think this is... Absolutely the correct decision. Hmm. So something uh, counts as fair use if it is transformative. If it is used, uh, if, if the purpose of the use is largely functional uh, and not to make money based on the intellectual property of the original creator, and in that case that would be Apple, who created the iOS operating system. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the, the purpose of copying the system in this controlled artificial setting is to improve the security posture uh, of iOS devices generally and just devices generally. I mean, right. it's clearly an instance of trying to uh, simulate certain attacks to uh, figure out how to protect against security intrusions. Um, and that certainly counts as a transformative use. Uh it is a largely functional use of this software. It's not uh, intended to profit off the work of that software. Uh, and that, to me, falls under the standard definition of fair use. Uh, I think this is important for uh, in the broader context because it will augment the ability for companies like Corellium to test out different security features without running afoul of intellectual property laws. Um, there's a quote from uh, somebody who submitted an amicus brief in this case, the Senior Policy Council at Public Knowledge, um, which is an advocacy group. Uh, and she said that today's ruling represents a victory for both security and fair use. It is well established in copyright law that protected works can be used in their entirety if necessary for the purpose of criticism, commentary, and other transformative uses. Uh, and that's exactly what happened here. Uh, you're using the software to create valuable tools without using it to try and uh, independently make a profit. Hmm. Uh, and because this is security research, this bodes well 
for other security researchers uh, who want to try and emulate a common operating system but don't want to be accused of uh, violating somebody's intellectual property. Right. So I think this decision is right on the merits. Uh, I think this is clearly an example of fair use. And I think from a policy perspective, this type of judicial decision should be encouraged because uh, it will augment the ability of companies like Corellium to uh, improve our collective cybersecurity posture. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's a good decision from the Eleventh uh, Circuit. I, I was reading through the the decision itself, and there are a couple things here that caught my eye. There's a section titled "The Nature of the Copyrighted Work," and they make the point. They say I'm reading right from the decision here. They say the Supreme Court has explained that quote. Computer programs are primarily functional, making it difficult to apply traditional copyright concepts in that technological world. Um, And then later in this section, they say, for these reasons, we conclude that iOS is further from the core of copyright than protected works like paintings, movies, and books. This I find fascinating in that um, I'm just imagining... You know, folks at Apple who who very much fancy themselves artists, right? Right. That their software is it's part art. of the culture there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, to have the court say that this operating system is primarily functional and is not a work of art, <laughs> right? I think I could imagine that rubbing them very much the wrong way. But I, I again, I, I'm curious what your take is on this. This is not. I was unaware of this perspective and that the Supreme Court had weighed in to this specificity when it comes to things like operating systems, as as tagging them as being more functional than a creative work. So while I agree with the decision, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with that particular statement. Hmm. I think there is certainly some creativity that went into developing the iOS system. Yeah. Um, Certainly, uh, the design elements of it are a form of creative work. Uh, the some of the some of the functional uses are creative. I mean, some creative thought went into uh, making our iPhones look beautiful. <laughs> right, it's like right. it's not entirely a functional creation. It's not like we're you know just uh, typing in like certain lines of code to get what we want to see. Yeah, you're not staring at a command line. uh, Exactly. (laughs) A glowing green screen, yeah. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) There are bright, uh, beautiful colors that we can look at when using these systems. So I think there is a creative element there. I just think that this is a fair use of that element. Uh, I don't think, I think you can still say that Corellium's use of the iOS platform is still fair under our intellectual property laws without denigrating uh, the work of, of building out the uh, building out iOS on the part of Apple by saying that it's no more it's less creative than somebody's painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you have to go that far to still acknowledge that this is that this is fair use. Yeah. Again, reading uh, there's a section here where they talk about balancing the factors, and they say. First, Corellium software is a transformative product that furthers copyrights, aims in advancing science through research. Second, iOS is primarily functional, so it falls outside the core of copyrights protection. Third, Corellium didn't overhelp itself to iOS. That's interesting. And fourth, we can't say, as things stand, that Corsec, that's the company uh, that's Corellium's, um, you know, 
mothership company. Parent company. Yeah, yeah, parent company. Thank you. Substantially harms the iOS market or any iOS derivative market. In the end, by creating an innovative product that advances scientific progress without superseding iOS, Corellium has captured the balance that copyright is after. Without foreclosing a future claim based on different facts, we conclude that Corellium on this record made fair use of iOS. Uh... I, I guess part of me also is surprised that um, we didn't come down on the side of big tech in a copyright case, right? I know, or, or... I know. It's like, <laughs> I'm sure Corellium isn't actually the little guy here. Right, they have right. Billions of dollars, but like, yeah. to have an intellectual property case against Apple and to win it is is kind of, you know, a fun little story. <laughs> You're, it's, it's a little bit of a David versus Goliath. Uh-huh. One of the reasons I think it's a right decision is looking at the original constitutional purpose of our intellectual property laws. Right. So the purpose of copyright, and this is in Article 1, Section 8 of our Constitution, is to, quote, promote the progress of science and useful arts. So you want to protect people's useful creations, um, but uh, in doing so, you have to balance that against uh, the, the benefits you would get from from fair use, Mm -hmm. uh, such as improving security features. And I think that's kind of inherent in that definition. Mm -hmm. You are promoting uh, the creative use of iOS and all different other types of of platforms by seeing what its security vulnerabilities are and figuring out how to uh, correct for those vulnerabilities. I think that furthers the mission of promoting the progress of science and useful arts. Um, And I think the point about this not being... This is not fostering any kind of direct competition to the operating system is, is compelling as well. Nobody's going to go out and purchase a Corellium operating system to compete with iOS. Right. That's just not the nature of what they're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, I was trying to think of what an analog would be uh, in, in the non-digital world. And it would be sort of like a um, local fire department recreating a uh, private, like the offices of a private business to mm-hmm. practice firefighting. Oh, yeah. They are not competing with that private business. Uh, you know, even if they put the logo of that business on there, right. even if they include right. some of the uh, distinctive features of, of that physical business, they're not trying to compete with that business. They're not trying to um, use that business's creative works or intellectual property uh, to make money for themselves. Uh, and I think all of us would understand in that context that it's certainly fair use. Yeah. Um, so if, if you want a non-digital way to try and think about it, I can, you know, I can provide that admittedly uh, shaky metaphor for you. Yeah. Well, they also point out that it, it's not... It's not, um, a f- they're not running afoul. Corellium is not running afoul by making a product that they charge money for. That doesn't, that doesn't automatically disqualify them from fair use. Right. Because uh, I think it has to do with how they're making the money mm. because it's not the direct, they're not providing an operating system. So they're not in direct competition with the company that they are allegedly violating uh, the copyrighted works of. Mm-hmm. I just ended a sentence with a preposition. It's going bo- <laughs> to bother me for Slap a while. Slap on the wrist, yeah. I know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, they're making money off their security research. Uh, so it's it's not a direct connection uh, or a direct competition with that uh, original company that's the subject of the lawsuit. So yeah. I think... 
Um, that's absolutely right that you can still have fair use. Even if they are making money, they're making money as a security company. Right. They're not making money as a, uh, a company that runs an operating system. Mm-hmm. They're not selling mobile devices with iOS installed on them. Exactly. Now, yeah. that would be a very clear copyright violation. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> that case would be uh, a very easy one for a court to decide, and it would certainly not be fair use. But that's just not what's happening here. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have links to all of these stories in our show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. Uh, If there's something you'd like us to cover, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Ben, uh, we are uh, taking a little different path this week. Uh, Rather than having a guest, we are going to talk, you and I, about some recent legislation that you had a hand in here in Maryland. Uh, I just think it'd be really interesting to hear the behind the scenes of how something like this makes its way through a state. Um, So let's start with the beginning here. You're, uh, You're sitting there at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, minding your own business. As I do, uh, yep. <laughs> as you do, uh, you know, uh, scrolling through your computer, reading all of the works of Orrin Kerr, when suddenly uh, <laughs> do you get an email or a phone call. What happens? So uh, about three years ago, I ended up, this is right before the pandemic, I ended up in a meeting uh, with a state senator hmm. who's actually been on the show, Senator hmm. Katie Fry Hester, mm-hmm. uh, members of the Maryland Department of Emergency Management, and uh, members of the Department of Information Technology. Hmm. We had an informal conversation about changing uh, cybersecurity governance, the cybersecurity governance structure in Maryland. Okay. Um, there was this growing problem where units of local government were suffering from cyber attacks, uh, and they didn't quite know how to respond. They didn't know where to find resources. Uh, There wasn't enough money for them to improve their own uh, security posture, or there wasn't dedicated money for them to do that. Hmm. There wasn't proper coordination among jurisdictions. Um, So I was part of a process and ended up being a three-year process to Uh, try and solve some of those problems. Hmm. Uh, And they were born out of real experiences. Baltimore City suffered a ransomware attack in 2019. The Baltimore County School District uh, suffered a ransomware attack during a period of virtual learning towards the end of 2020, early 2021. We've had smaller jurisdictions like the town of Leonardtown uh, that suffered uh, a ransomware attack. And then there's the separate issue, which is attacks on critical infrastructure. So critical infrastructure is defined in federal law, um, but to boil it down very simply, it's 
public utilities that we rely on uh, to keep us moving, to keep us living. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. water utilities, uh, electric utilities, mm. gas utilities, um, these all qualify as uh, critical infrastructure for the purpose of cybersecurity. And here in Maryland, those companies are regulated by an entity called the Public Services uh, or the Public Service Commission. Okay. Uh, so... We were tasked at the Center for Health and Homeland Security uh, to do some background research on all of these uh, problems and to try and recommend some governance uh, solutions. Uh, And we made a series of recommendations in two reports. One of those reports related to um, state and local cybersecurity. So some of the issues we were seeing at state agencies, how to better coordinate among agencies, how to have more of a centralized uh, model of cybersecurity uh, run out of uh, the office of our state CISO, some of those governance problems. Mm. Um, that was addressed in a report drafted by a subcommittee, an ad hoc subcommittee of the Maryland Cybersecurity Council. Okay. Um, and that report inspired three separate laws that were enacted in 2022 hmm. um, that dealt with some of those governance issues. There was a separate issue. Uh, this public services, uh, this public service commission slash critical infrastructure issue, that was the subject of a separate re- uh, report. And I want to give a major shout out to an NSA fellow who was working with the Office of the Attorney General. Her name was Laura Corcoran. Hmm. And she put in a summer uh, of effort, she was a great researcher, in delving into this problem of cybersecurity vulnerabilities among uh, public service commission regulated entities. So power companies in Maryland are water utilities. uh, And we've seen how those vulnerabilities can have kinetic effects. Um, it wasn't a public utility, but the attack on the on the Colonial Pipeline created a major supply shock in terms of the uh, availability of gasoline in the state. Right, uh, and even though that was not a public entity, it certainly had uh, detrimental downstream effects. Then there was this incident, really scary incident, uh, maybe uh, something like six to nine months ago, where uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore was able to thwart an attack on the Baltimore uh, City and Baltimore County uh, electrical system Hmm. by an alleged white nationalist uh, who had gotten relatively advanced in in planning this attack. Um, And they were going to exploit some of these cybersecurity vulnerabilities uh, with that public utility to to perpetuate an act of terrorism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to cut off our our power. Hmm. Uh, And this is really what keeps me up at night, some of these potential attacks on our critical infrastructure, the things that we rely on uh, to survive. People can go without electricity for, you know, a couple of days if necessary. Um, Anything longer than that, it becomes a huge issue. Um, People need to go to dialysis centers. Uh, The hospitals have... um, generators, but those are only operable for a certain amount of time. Right. Any damage to the water supply, um, you do the math, it's, it's going to be very difficult. Hmm. So, in 2022, a version of, a, of this bill that ended up becoming law uh, to institute cybersecurity regulations on both the Public Service Commission and regulated uh, public utilities failed in the legislature. Hmm. Uh, One of the reasons it failed was widespread opposition from the utility companies themselves and really lukewarm support, if not uh, secret opposition from the Public Service Commission uh, itself. Hmm. Basically, they thought that this bill would be overly onerous, it would be duplicative of uh, 
measures that are already in existence. They have to comply with federal cybersecurity standards. Um, so they thought that this bill would be duplicative. Uh, as oftentimes occurs in the Maryland General Assembly, um, once there's that uh, level of institutional opposition, sometimes it's it's the, the proper political move to just withdraw the bill and take another stab at it next year. I see. Um, because the state legislature here in Maryland only meets for 90 days. Uh, if you can't get it through that 90-day session, uh, you always have another bite of the apple in the next legislative year. Hmm. So that's exactly what happened here. Um, Senator Katie Fry Hester and her, her counterpart in the House of Delegates, um, a gentlelady by the name of Lily Key, uh, introduced a bill that was largely modeled off the report from that NSA fellow, Laura, Laura Corcoran, yeah. uh, but was melded to try and soften some of the opposition um, from the Public Service Commission and from regulated utilities. Hmm. Uh, so the bill contains a number of provisions. Uh, it requires that one or more employees that are experts in cybersecurity are on the staff of the Public Service Commission. Uh, which is a really profound, important provision to get some of that institutional expertise in that very powerful Public Service Commission that regulates uh, these utilities. Hmm. Uh, the Public Service Commission now has to consider the protection of a public service company's infrastructure against cyber attacks in the process of promulgating regulations. Uh, so now by statute, as a result of this law, Cybersecurity has to be consideration in every uh, single rule, every single regulation that comes out of that commission. Hmm. So those were the regulations imposed on the commission itself. Each public service uh, company, and they accepted common carriers and telephone companies, I'm going to get to that in a moment, (laughs) uh, has to take certain specified actions related to cybersecurity um, by a deadline set out in the bill, that's July 1st, 2024, and then every two years uh, thereafter. So they have to contract with a third party to undergo a cybersecurity assessment and have to submit certifications of compliance um, to uh, with those cybersecurity standards to the Public Services Commission. Okay. And the PSC, uh, the Public Service Commission, has to submit a report uh, every two years with information about these public service companies and their cybersecurity posture to the state chief information security officer or his or her uh, designee. Hmm. Uh, So this imposes some significant requirements on both the Public Service Commission and those regulated utilities. And uh, during the consideration of this legislation, some of that opposition that we saw last year from the utility companies came back and, and reared its its ugly head. Mm. Uh, so if you looked at the opposition file uh, for this bill, so basically all of the written testimony submitted in opposition, it was a who's who of Maryland utility companies. Hmm. Baltimore Gas and Electric, uh, Pepco, which covers the D.C. area, they all wrote in opposition saying that this was duplicative, that this is going to be uh, overly burdensome. And because of the costs involved here, those costs were going to be passed down uh, to the consumer. Right. Uh, so during the consideration of this uh, legislation, there was a discussion amongst us stakeholders, amongst us people who had been involved uh, with this legislation and with this policy for a while, that perhaps it would be a good idea to scale the bill down a little bit. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater if we couldn't regulate uh, these public utilities and have them comply with uh, cybersecurity requirements 
at least we could include the provision requiring a cybersecurity expert to be hired uh, at the PSC. That was kind of the minimum we wanted to accept uh, to have that dedicated Hmm. cybersecurity staff. That's kind of what I was expecting to be the end outcome here. Um, But Senator Hester and Delegate Key uh, were able to convince their colleagues to make this bill significantly stronger and include um, those biannual third-party cybersecurity assessments for those public utilities. Uh, And they pushed for it publicly and privately uh, through the committee process. Uh, and the bill was able to make it across the finish line. And hmm. it was signed into law uh, last week as we're recording this, and I was there for um, the signing because it was the culmination of a lot of hard work, a lot of research uh, on really the best public policy solution to the cybersecurity vulnerabilities of our critical infrastructure here in Maryland. Wow. Um, so I, I get that that's a long story, um, <laughs> but I think uh, the passage of the, of this legislation really does go back into some of these meetings we had to try to address these vulnerabilities. And I'm proud that the product that emerged was something um, that's significantly stronger than what I expected several weeks ago. Huh. Um, so uh, I, I'm encouraged. I was glad to be there uh, standing behind the governor uh, in that picture. And uh, hopefully this is something that's going to protect the interests of, of Marylanders going forward. To what degree does this have teeth? Like who, who we've you know, if, if a utility uh, misses their deadline or fails to report in a way that is expected of them, who who comes at them and, and what kind of tools do they have to do that? Well, that's always the question is compliance, uh, you know, without teeth is, is sometimes companies are just going to decide it's not worth complying. Even if something is written down in statute, what are they going to do to us? Are they right. going to punish us? Um, you know, there are the... Public Service Commission itself uh, has the power to regulate these entities, and you don't want to get on the ne- on the bad side of the Public Service Commission, especially as they will now have experts dedicated to cybersecurity on staff, mm-hmm. um, and they are required to submit a certification uh, of the company's compliance with standards. Um, at, at least or, or to the level or greater than the standards adopted by the Public Service Commission for itself. Uh, and if they don't comply, if they don't submit that certification that they're complying with those standards, the PSC certainly has it within their power to institute some type of penalty. Hmm. Um, that's the uh, that's the beauty of, of the PSC. They are regulating, they're a, a, a quasi-public entity that's regulating these companies, and so they have the power of enforcement. Um, So they could certainly do something like institute civil penalties uh, on on these companies. Hmm. You can also just kind of publicly shame them. You know, why was this one company the one that didn't submit to its biannual cybersecurity assessment? What are they trying to hide? Right, Um, right. (laughs) You know, uh, is it creating an unnecessary vulnerability for the state? And uh, as the Public Service Commission... Should that require us to take action against this company? Uh, and I think it's the strong hammer of the Public Service Commission itself that's going to be charged with making sure that these regulations have teeth. How did the telcos get a pass? Uh, that is a great question. Um in talking to the sponsors of the bill, I didn't get a good answer to that question. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so we're so we're talking politics, right? <laughs> I yeah. Guess. I mean, but, yeah. I mean, interesting. I think you, whether it was lobbyists who got in the ear of some of a powerful committee chairman, sometimes that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think this is this question is not uh, and it, it, this question is not firmly decided. I think there's going to be other chances to go out and try to apply some of these regulations uh, for the utilities that were excluded from this bill. And I've already heard rumors that that's going to be addressed in future legislation. Okay, it might be that that was just too big of a uh, too big of an ask in a single legislative session. You wanted to start with uh, other critical infrastructure companies beyond the telecoms that I think uh, present a little bit more urgency because we're talking about electric, gas, water systems. Um, you wanted to get something in place for those systems uh, for which there would be really deleterious kinetic effects. Yeah. And then you'll worry about uh, the common carriers and the telecom companies in the next legislative session. So I would say stay tuned. I don't think this is the final word on uh, public utility cybersecurity requirements. Um, you know, there are also still other gaps in uh, state cybersecurity governance. Uh, uh, we're looking at doing research on the cybersecurity posture of Maryland public schools and our, our 24 public school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that could be addressed in future legislation as well. Um, but I can't give you a great answer as to why they were excluded from this bill, but I don't mm-hmm. think um, that necessarily means that they're going to be excluded uh, in the long run. Was there any looking at what other states are doing as this was being crafted, or is, you know, is Maryland blazing a trail or uh, copying what some other states have already done? Where, where did it come from that point of view? So this, uh, to varying degrees, has been adopted in a number of other states, and that greatly informed the research we did on uh, this product. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will brag that some of our externs from the Center for Health and Homeland Security were instrumental in collecting data from other states and how they have tried to institute cybersecurity requirements on uh, both their equivalents of public service commissions and their regulated utilities. Um, So... Maryland is not exactly uh, blazing a new trail here. The fact that other states had instituted similar regulations, that was noted in the report from the NSA fellow, and that certainly informed the passage of this legislation. I think it made it more palatable. Anytime that other states have done something, I think it makes legislators a little bit more receptive to to doing it in in our state. Mm -hmm. To what degree was this a collaborative process? I mean, you mentioned that the folks that this is going to affect, you know, they were against it, certainly against certain parts of it. But despite that, are, are they giving input that says, you know, hey, we don't like this, but here are some ways maybe we could go along with this? Yeah, I mean, some of their opposition was actually constructive and was reflected in the final amended version of the bill. Huh. Uh, so there are some letters from utility companies that were purely in opposition. Some others had... Uh, constructive ideas for amendments um, that removed certain requirements, added others. Uh, so there certainly was that level of collaboration at the committee level. Uh-huh. And some of those uh, recommended changes were adopted in the final version of the bill. I still don't think the utility companies were happy, and I will note that <laughs> none of them were at the bill signing. Oh, uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, we weren't standing there with representatives from BGE and, and, Pet, uh, and PEPCO. I don't think they were particularly thrilled about having these requirements foisted upon them. And but the lights stayed on, right? The like lights the, did, did stay on. The lights didn't flicker. The <laughs> there, was, there was no sabotage. Right, okay. Yeah. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> and I think um, both the companies and the Public Service Commission, uh, starting when this uh, bill takes effect, which is July 1st, 2023, whatever they thought about uh, the bill during the legislative process are now tasked with complying with its requirements. Yeah. Uh, and I think that process will be collaborative. 
Um, what's good about having the regulations come from the PSC is that we're leveraging these pre-existing relationships. The PSC already regulates these utilities. Um, so the utilities are used to dealing with all different types of regulations and reporting procedures with the PSC, and this just adds cybersecurity uh, regulations and reporting. I see. So it's not completely reinventing the wheel. It's not creating a new agency or a new enforcement authority. It's leveraging the enforcement authority that we already have, and I think that might make it, even if these companies are in opposition, it might make life a little bit easier for them in, yeah. in trying to comply. You also have to think these companies must have seen this coming. I mean, it's not like there's anything mysterious or surprising that cybersecurity is going to be on the minds of legislators. Not at all, especially when we've seen these high-profile attacks. Um, We've heard these horror stories. It's happened in other states where there have been cyber attacks on water systems. Water gets contaminated. This wasn't a cyber incident, but we had a boil advisory in Baltimore City uh, several months ago, which just really created significant havoc Mm. um, where the water system was unsafe for a period of days. Um, There uh, were concerns about, there have been concerns about attacks on our electrical grids going back years. So yeah, this is a very live issue and certainly... The companies had to expect that uh, policymakers were going to get their their we're going to wrap their arms around this, uh, especially when Maryland has been a leader in developing cybersecurity policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of uh, we can leverage the fact that we have great academic institutions in the state with cybersecurity experts, and a lot of great private sector entities who are committed to this mission of improving our cybersecurity posture, and that makes Maryland uh, uniquely situated. So, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think this is something that they certainly could have accepted um, <laughs> or could have expected. Uh, You're waving your session. adopted flag, Ben. <laughs> I sure am, yeah. Uh, side note, Maryland does have the best state flag of any of the 50 state flags. I agree. I will, I I will, agree. I will stand up for that flag any day. <laughs> I agree, but I'm, I'm biased. I'm certainly a homer when it comes to that. All right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for uh, sharing that perspective. I think it's really interesting to have an inside view of how something like this makes its way through the legislature. So I'm, I'm really glad uh, you're able to share that story. Absolutely, and happy to talk about it. And uh, again, my apologies for those who are uh, waiting to hear a different voice in the interview segment. <laughs> we'll have you next. We'll, uh, we'll get that going for you next week. That's right. That's right. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. (laughs) 
All right. Well, that is our show, and we want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can write us an email at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like Caveat are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.